I mean five. <laughs> Hebrews chapter five, just seeing if you guys are awake this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, we're continuing to work our way through this book. We are reminded once again this morning that this is not an easy book to work our way through. Um, It's sort of one of the most advanced books, if you will, if you could use that phraseology in the New Testament. Certainly it is for the Western Gentile mind, that would be most of us, for the Western non-Jewish mind, because it incorporates so much of the Old Testament and so much of the structure that God designed into Judaism and the Levitical priesthood and the worship structure and the tabernacle and the temple. So if we're not real strong in the Old Testament and the things that God designed there for Judaism, then this book is a stretch for us. But it's good because we want to be in just a little bit over our heads, right? Just a little bit over our heads. But we're taking our time and working our way through. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Lord, thank you for this wonderful book that is before us. Thank you that this New Testament book reveals Jesus to us like maybe no other book in the New Testament. Jesus, you are so exalted here. You are so wonderfully revealed in all your facets and all your glory and all the complexity and richness of your being. It's beautiful the way that we've been able to behold you in this book, to know you more. And Lord, that's our goal, to know you more. Please save us from just doing church today. Save us from churchianity. Bring us into authentic Jesus Christianity that our hearts and our minds would be focused on you, that Jesus, you would be the center. You would be enthroned in our lives. Lord, forgive us for the way we often relegate you to a peripheral position in our lives. We want to bring you back into the center this morning and we want to discover more about you and fall more in love with you. And quite frankly, Lord, we want to obey you more. We believe that you're right in all things. We confess that together. Church, amen. We believe that you are right in all things, Lord. And so help us to obey you. Help us when we come to your word not to see it as an option or a quaint piece of antiquity, but the living, breathing, active, inerrant word of God that is absolutely authoritative for our lives. Help us to bring our lives in line with who you are and what your word says. Give us humility to yield to your will when the battle of the wills is raging. Help us to, will to yield to you, Lord. Strengthen us by your spirit to do these things. Holy Spirit, I ask that you come and help me to teach now. I'm not worthy, I'm not able apart from your blood and your spirit. Holy Spirit, help me to communicate your truths in a way that honors you and is consistent with your word and builds up this body. Do this, we ask it together. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been discovering in the last couple chapters here one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews, and that is Jesus Christ being presented as the high priest. Jesus presented as our high priest. As I said, it's one of the main themes. There'll be a great exposition of that as we move through the chapters. We'll come to a richer understanding. But last week we saw that for the high priest in Israel, speaking of the Old Testament now, for the high priest in Israel... There were four requirements, four requirements for anybody to be a high priest in Israel. And what we saw in our study last week is that Jesus in his humanity met all of those requirements. 
but he wasn't uh, in the order of the Aaronic priesthood. We remember what that means from the family of Aaron, the tribe of Levi. He wasn't from the Aaronic priesthood. He was from the order of Melchizedek. Remember we talked about Melchizedek? You guys should be studying him. Uh, He's a trip. We're going to get to him in, in chapter 7 and dive into him a little bit more. But there's all these questions. Was it an angelic appearance, this Melchizedek guy that appeared to Abraham in Genesis 14? Was it a Christophany? That is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ to Abraham. Because when you read about Melchizedek in chapter 7, kind of seems like a Christophany. Or was he just some trippy, gnarly king priest dude in Jerusalem? Who was this guy? And what we began to scratch the surface of last week was that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why that is important is this. Because you remember God had set up a balance of power in ancient Israel. That is to say, the kings came from one tribe and one family, and the priests came from another tribe and a different family. The kings from the tribe of Judah and the family of David, the priests from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron. Therefore, no man in Israel, the line being traced through the father, no man in Israel could be both priest and king. And we talked about last week that when a king tried to act as a priest, God dealt very harshly with him. Saul lost his crown because of that, and Uzziah was struck with leprosy because he attempted to do that. But the New Testament presents Jesus Christ as not only our high priest, but as a king of kings as well. But if he is a priest and he was from the line of Aaron, then he couldn't be a king in the Jewish mind, the book of Hebrews being written to the Jewish Christian mind. And so the way that that is worked around is through Melchizedek. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek who was a priest in a place called Salem, later on was called Jerusalem. And his priesthood predated the Aaronic priesthood as established by God in the Old Testament. He had a perpetual priesthood. And so when Jesus is then a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and we'll get to more in chapter seven, it means that he is a priest forever, but he is also the king forever. He is both priest and king as Melchizedek was, yet he is the eternal Lord of Lord and God of gods. Amen. Now, the qualifications that he met that we saw being um, consistent with all priests was this. Number one, the priests had to have solidarity. We saw that last week. They had to be taken from among men. What does solidarity mean? Unity or agreement or feeling, in feeling of, or action. Unity or agreement of feeling or action. So there had to be solidarity. The high priest had to be able to identify with men. He was taken from among men. There was selection. They were appointed by God. They weren't elected by the people, nor did they volunteer. There was sympathy. They had to deal gently with people, and they could because they themselves were sinners. And then sacrifices. They had to offer sacrifices first for themselves and then on behalf of the nation. And what we saw last week is that Jesus qualified for all of those things in his humanity. Solidarity because he became a man. Selection because he was appointed by God the Father. Sympathy. He's able to deal gently with us and sympathize with our weaknesses, not because he has sinned. That would be a Christological heresy or a wrong idea about Jesus Christ. But because he hasn't sinned, he has sympathy because he alone knows the full strength of sin. He's the only one who has ever resisted sin all the way until the end. And so he alone knows the full power of sin. And so when we're tempted, he can sympathize with the power coming against us. 
And then sacrifices. He is the sacrifice once and for all. Today's verses, as we look at verses 7 through 10, are going to elaborate on the idea of Christ's solidarity and sympathy with humanity as our great high priest. And we'll see that in his humanity, Christ suffered, he obeyed, and he was perfected. Let's see what that means as we go to the text. Starting in verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now let's look in verse 7 that talks about the fact that Jesus suffered in his humanity and what that means for our relationship with him. Notice that it starts out in verse 7 by saying, in the days of his flesh. That is simply denoting that in the, his time here on earth, okay? So we're given a little snapshot of the time period to which this verse refers. His time during the incarnation and on earth. His days in the flesh. It doesn't mean uh, like when we say, dude, you're in the flesh. You know what I mean? And you're acting carnal. You're acting like a jerk. It's, it's not referring to the flesh being the fallen nature of man. Just Christ in humanity, the incarnation. Look what it says in the next part of that verse. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Now, within that time frame of him on earth, to which event that we know of in scripture might that be referring to? The Garden of Gethsemane, you guys are awesome. It refers to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what the Garden of Gethsemane teaches us in a nutshell, among other things, is this. When we are going through the extreme difficulties of life, does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. When you're going through the extreme difficulties of life, there's a yearning within all of us It's common to all of us, and it's this. We want to be able to turn to somebody who's been there. You want to be able to turn to somebody who's been there. When you're in your later years and you're facing cancer and it's a real life and death situation, you're not going to turn to the 16-year-old. It's just not what you do. You want to turn to somebody who's been there. When your marriage is, is encountering difficult times, and you're trying so hard to make it, and it's just a struggle and a battle every day, you're not going to turn to the 12-year-old and seek counsel. You want to turn to somebody who's been married for 30, 40, 50 years, who's made it, someone that's been there, that's been in the difficult times. What the Garden of Gethsemane reveals to us is that we have in Jesus a Savior and a Lord and a friend who has been there. He has been there in the garden. He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. That is to say, there was something going on that was difficult for him to deal with in his humanity. Something that was tremendously trying. Remember, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. 
Luke tells us, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the only time in all of his time on earth that he ever asked for help. He told the disciples, come on guys, come into the garden here. Peter, James, John, I want you guys to pray with me and for me. I've got to go a little further into the garden to talk to the Father. Would you please tarry with me? Would you wait here and pray with me? It is the only time that we ever see Jesus Christ asking for help in his humanity. We must remember that Jesus is properly understood in theology, fully God and fully man. He is fully God and we love that, but he's also fully man. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see perhaps his humanity most fully exposed. He's asking for help. What he's going through is so trying, so overwhelming, so difficult. He tells the boys, pray for me. And when it says here in verse 7 that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying, there's something for us to glean from that. That word in Greek that translated loud crying is krage, krage in the Greek, loud crying. And it's significant because of this. It means a crying out, screaming, shouting. It's a cry of public information. It's a clamor of tumult or controversy. It's wailing or sorrow. It's not a weak word. It's a very strong word. It doesn't mean he was just like, oh, Father, help me. He was crying out. And here's something else I want to bring out in this word. It's a cry which a man does not choose to utter, but is wrung from him in the stress of some tremendous tension or searing pain. Some of you can relate to this. It's that cry that in the midst of stress and heartache and pain comes from deep within you. There's no controlling it. It's involuntary. It's from the deepest part of your being. And it's a desperate cry for help. The thing we need to begin to glean from that is this. There is no agony, no depth of agony of the human spirit that Jesus has not experienced. Remember what it says in chapter 4, verse 15? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet is without sin. What we learn in the Garden of Gethsemane, consistent with the idea that the high priest has to be sympathetic, is that Jesus in his humanity experienced the depth of despair. A crying out in prayer, a wailing, a clamor of tumult. The ancient rabbis had a saying about this sort of prayer. They said this, there are three kinds of prayer, each loftier than the preceding. You have prayer, crying out, and tears, they would say. Prayer is made in silence, crying out with raised voice, but tears overcome all things. And the Jewish mindset, this kind of praying that Jesus was doing in his humanity in Gethsemane was the deepest, most desperate sort of prayer wrought from the most difficult of human experience. Jesus knows and understands and can sympathize with even our most desperate moments. This demonstrates to us once again, Christ's solidarity with humanity as our high priest and his sympathy with humanity as our high priest. Now to understand 
the Gethsemane experience fully, we've got to lay hold of the fact that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And part of what it means that he's fully man is this. In his humanity, Jesus placed the exercise of his omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence under the direction of the Father. He yielded the sovereignty of the exercise of those attributes of God to the Father when he took on humanity. He laid it down. This truth explains some of the flashes of supernatural knowledge and working that we see in Christ in the Gospels. Sometimes he knew the heart of men. Other times it seems that he didn't necessarily know. Like when James and John in Mark chapter 10 came and said, we want to sit on your right or in your left when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, that's not for me to appoint. That is only for whom the Father has prepared it. And like when they came and said in Acts chapter one to Jesus, Jesus, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And he said, I don't even know the time of the coming. Only the father knows that time. So the supernatural attributes of God, when Jesus took on humanity, were surrendered in their time and their working to the sovereignty of the father. This also explains how he could undergo in the agony of Gethsemane, a true experience of full humanity. What we see in Gethsemane is authentic human agony in facing the reality of the cross. Now notice the verse says that he prayed to the one who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his piety. Let's continue to unpack this. That word piety in the New American Standard Eulabea in the Greek. Eulabea in the Greek. The primary meaning relates to the exercise of caution. The idea in the ancient Greek mind was this, that in dealing with a transcendent realm, one must be especially cautious about making offense to deities. And so within the context of the Bible, it's understood this way, as reverent awe or fear in the presence of God. He was heard because of his reverent awe or fear in the presence of God. And remember the dynamic of caution. That word denotes that in approaching God, there was a degree of caution among the one who approached. Here's how this all works out. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was dealing with what we will call the battle of the wills. The battle of the will. In the cross... He was facing a very real struggle that we will all face sooner or later, the issue of death. It was imminent when he was in the garden. What laid before him was the cross, which brought up for him in his humanity, the issue of death. Now, all of humanity faces death because of the fall of man and because of sin, correct? That's why death is so darn difficult for us is because we were not made to die. We were made to live. God made us to live. But when sin entered, death entered in. Death is unnatural. Weird, right? That's counterintuitive to modern humanity. We think, well, death is the most natural thing. Everybody experiences it. Because everybody experiences it doesn't mean it's natural. When I say it's unnatural, it goes against the will and the desire and the plan of God. He made us to live, to live with him and to know him. But when sin entered in, death entered in, and death is called in the New Testament an enemy. 
It is unnatural. It is contrary to God. It is an enemy, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says. But it's something we're all going to face. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his humanity, Jesus was facing death. Now, we all face it because of sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Jesus was facing death because of sin, but not his own sin. We deserve death because we're sinners. Jesus was without sin. And so he was facing death, but for the sins of humanity and not for his own. And concerning death, look what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn back a couple pages. Hebrews chapter 2. Look in verse 14. Hebrews 2.14, since then the children share in flesh and blood, speaking about you and I and the fact that we're people with flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise, also partook of the same, the incarnation. Look, look, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Death entered in because of sin. And who's the king of sin but Satan himself? And so death became his realm. And the plan of Satan was to enslave humanity in fear through the reality of death. Jesus drapes himself in humanity and faced death on behalf of humanity to remove the fear. Or as 1 Corinthians 15 says, to remove the sting of death. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his humanity, Jesus is facing the sting of death. It is very real to him at that moment. In his humanity, Christ was subject to the reality, the pain, and the fear of death. Don't forget the torment that he would undergo in just hours. The beatings over and over again. The scourging that would have laid him open from the back of his neck to the back of his knees, exposing his inner organs. The pressing into his skull of the crown of thorns. The pounding through his body of the nails. The hanging on the cross. The rotating on the nails by his own strength to inhale and exhale on the cross. But it wasn't only the physical reality that lay before him. More potently, it was the spiritual reality that he would experience taking on the sins of humanity and that a matter of hours, he would cry out something that he, as the second person of the Godhead, had never cried out before. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There would come a temporary separation between him and the Father. In that union that had always been throughout eternity past, there would come a separation as he was made sin on our behalf on the cross and bared the weight and the brunt of the wrath of God for us. And that is what was most heavy upon the heart of Jesus Christ the man, as he was in the garden of Gethsemane, that he would experience the weight of the sins of the world. And so Mark chapter 14, verse 33, says that Jesus was very distressed and troubled. 
The idea communicated by this phrase is terrified human surprise. As he considered the cross and the reality of it, he was astonished with horror in his humanity in the garden. He was very serious when he said in the garden, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He prayed that prayer three times, Matthew 26 tells us. Three times. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. The cup being metaphorical for the death and the experience of the cross. This is a prayer that we have all prayed. God, anything is possible for you. Change my situation. God, change the reality of this. Stop this from happening in my life. God, you can do anything. Where are you? Why is this happening to me? Why am I experiencing this? God, you can do anything. Change this. We've all experienced that cry to one degree or another. This moment reveals the humanity of Christ like none other. And we must ask ourselves, how was it that Jesus, who set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, who prophesied of the cross and his resurrection, at this moment in the garden, could be asking for something contrary to the will of God? He said, in effect, God, if there is any other way to save humanity, let's do that. All things are possible for you. If there's any other way for me to fulfill my messianic mission and accomplish the salvation of these people, then can we please do that? You see, in his humanity, Jesus the Christ man had a human will and he had voluntary limited knowledge at times. And as a man, Jesus cried for escape. But also as a man... He desired the Father's will even more than escape. And this is key for us. Because Jesus was equally as passionate and serious and committed when he said at the end of that prayer, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. That was the crux of it. He prayed three times, if there is any other way, let's take it. And yet, not as I will, but as thou will. That is why, because Jesus prayed that prayer, it is such an utter abomination before God. When anybody, and especially Christians, begin to accept that there's any other way to the Father other than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus cried to the Father, if there's any other way, can we skip the cross? If there were any other way, the father for his son would have skipped the cross. There is no other way to the father except through Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross. It is an abomination when somebody begins to compromise on that doctrine and say, well, maybe there's another way. That would leave us with a masochistic father God.
The crux of it being for our application, at the end of his prayer, he said, Nevertheless, not my will, but thou will be done. Here is where we see the outworking of that Greek word, eulabeia, which was translated piety. Cautious, reverent awe or fear. Jesus was God, but he was totally submitted to the will of the Father in his humanity. And he was totally honest with the Father concerning what he was wrestling with. He was literally wrestling with the will of the Father and the reality of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, the pain and the fear of death. But he was totally cautious and reverent and in awe of the Father and the Father's will. You see, his reverent fear of the Father was greater than the fear of death. Put simply, his God was bigger than his problems. There's a key to living. His God was bigger than his problems. His reverence, that piety, his reverential fear, his reverence for the Father determined that his humanity would do nothing but please the Father. He feared God more than he feared his problems. Here's the point of application. You have a will, and God has a will. And sometimes these two wills will be in conflict. You will experience in life the battle of the wills. And what we understand from the teaching of the Bible is that to be in God's will may at certain times be painful, difficult, and sacrificial. That is where your piety, your reverential fear, your cautious approach to the person of God must kick in. That's where you must say, God, I fear you more than I fear men. I'm more concerned with your approval than the approval of men. My heart more desires to please you, God, than to please people. I'm more concerned with your glory than my comfort. But there will daily be a clash in those two realities. And the reverential fear must kick in where we come to the point of surrender. Jesus in the garden in his humanity came to the point of surrender when he said, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And it is because of that reverential fear, that right view of God, that exaltation of God, that he was heard. It says at the end of verse 7, and his prayer was heard because of his piety, his reverential fear. Now we know that God always hears our prayers, and especially the prayers of Christ. The implication of heard there is that his prayer was answered. That's the implication. Because he came to God with an attitude and a heart that was willing to yield, he didn't come to God and say, God, my will be done. He came to God and was honest. God, this scares me. Is there anything we could do about this? Nevertheless, in the final summation, your will be done, I yield to you. Because of that attitude, that prayer was answered. And the way that it was answered was that he was given victory over prayer. 
He went to the cross and we never heard another utter of protest. He went to the cross. When Peter denied him three times, he looked at Peter. I'm sure that it was a look that says, son, I love you and I forgive you and I accept you. And after Peter denied him three times, he went to the cross and he took three nails. And Isaiah 53 says he went silent like a lamb being led to slaughter. He didn't defend himself. He didn't protest. He obeyed the Father's will. He had been delivered from fear and he had been delivered out of death. He rose from the dead. Death could not hold him down. On the third day, he was risen. And in this way, that the fear of death was removed from the moment, the sting of death, and that the ultimate sting of death was removed in the resurrection, in this way, he experienced victory. Note for you and I in our daily living that the victory only came in surrender. The victory and the potency of God in our lives is experienced in surrender, our will to his. In the little things, in the minutia of life, in the daily decisions, in the little relational realities, in the habits, in the ways, and in the big things of life. Victory and freedom and power is experienced in surrender. Not when we insist upon our will but when ours is yielded to his because our fear of God is bigger than anything else. Now that brings us into verse 8. Verse 8 of Hebrews 5 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. In the New American Standard, that translation, although he was a son, is somewhat confusing. New Living Translation puts it very well. Even though Jesus was God's son. That's what's being said. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now check this out. He was God's son. We expect a few privileges with that. He was God's son, and yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That is to say, Christ's status as God's son did not exempt him from the learning process common to you and I. The learning process that is common to you and I is suffering. There are other ways that we learn but there are some things that are only learned through suffering. Martin Luther said, the greatest book in my library, the one from which I have learned the most, is called Affliction. It wasn't a real book, it was a real experience. The psalmist talks about it in the 119th Psalm, that through affliction, through suffering, we learn. It's not that God necessarily afflicts us, but we live in a fallen world where we will experience trouble, Jesus said. And Romans chapter 5 gives us hope. We consider it all joy when when we encounter various trials, knowing that they produce perseverance, and perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. There is a truth that humanity learns through suffering. Touch a hot stove, you're going to learn. 
give your heart away to the wrong person at the wrong time, you're going to learn. There's certain lessons that are only learned through the common human experience of suffering. And Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now, do not misunderstand what it means when it says he learned obedience. It does not mean that Jesus passed from disobedience into obedience. Don't read back into the scriptures about Jesus, our human experience. That's our human experience. We pass from disobedience into obedience on a few things now and then. (laughs) When it says he learned obedience, it doesn't mean he passed from disobeying to obeying. It's not what it's saying. Nor does it mean that he developed from imperfection to perfection. The idea is that his human experience was made complete. Jesus was born of a woman. And in that, he experienced the full of humanity. It's not as though he was in the womb with the full consciousness and omni, uh, omniscience that God has going, this womb that I made is so cool. I did such a good job on this when I created all things. It's not as always a baby who said, oh, I don't need to nurse. You know what I mean? Just bring me a lamb and we'll, we'll slaughter that thing. <laughs> Some, you know what I mean? He truly experienced humanity. That's part of the mystery of the incarnation. And part of that true experience of humanity was suffering and was learning. Remember, it says in Luke 2, he grew in stature and in wisdom and favor with God and with men. Not from disobedience to obedience, but into a full experience of humanity in order that he might be the sympathetic high priest who has solidarity because he shared in the flesh and blood experience and yet is without sin. He learned what obedience entailed in practice in the conditions of human life. He didn't obey in a vacuum. His obedience wasn't theoretical, it wasn't heavenly, it wasn't ethereal. He didn't obey in a perfect world. He obeyed in the context of this fallen world and in dealing with fallen humanity and the realities of that. And just like the Hebrew Christians to whom this letter was written were facing in their day and just like we face in our day, he obeyed in the midst of difficulty. Overwhelming circumstances that caused a desperate cry to come forth from his being, he persevered and he obeyed. You see, when we experience complex problems in life. We want to turn to somebody who's grappled with those problems. Jesus Christ had been there. He grappled with sin to the very end. He's confronted death and he was victorious over it. We turn to Jesus because he's experienced our trials, he's overcome them, and he has the compassion and the ability to help us because he is both man and yet he's God. That brings us to verse nine. It says, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Remember what I said a moment ago, that in his suffering, Jesus became complete in his human experience. That's the idea being completed here in verse nine. It says, and having been made perfect. Again, don't read humanity into that verse. It doesn't mean that he was passing from imperfection into perfection. 
In fact, our modern concept of perfection doesn't fit with the biblical idea being relayed here. The Greek word is teleao, teleao. The verb doesn't mean being brought out of a state of imperfection. In fact, the idea isn't perfection at all as we understand it. The idea is completion. Comes from the word telos, which means end or goal. And so the verb form, teleao, means completion, to reach the end, to reach the goal, to accomplish the purpose. And so through his sufferings, he accomplished the purpose of his humanity. And the purpose of his humanity was to be the high priest of you and I. But to qualify as a high priest according to the structure set up in the Old Testament, there had to be solidarity so he draped himself in humanity. There had to be selection so he was the son sent by the father. There had to be sympathy and so he went through suffering. And there had to be sacrifice and so he was the lamb of God. And so it says, having been made perfect or completing the goal of his incarnation, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now that salvation was accomplished through the cross. But the cross necessitated the incarnation. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The cost, the price of sin is death. How could God ever die except for taking on perishable human flesh? You see, the cross necessitated the incarnation. And not only did Jesus die that we might live, but he lived a perfect life that we might be blessed. Get this. God treated his son Jesus Christ on the cross as if he had lived our wicked lives that God might treat you and I for eternity as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. It's called imputed righteousness. It's taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Through the work of the cross, our sin, our death was dealt with. But not only are we rendered then morally neutral, but we have the righteousness of the person of Jesus Christ and the record of his perfect life accredited to us. If he only removed our sins, it would make us morally neutral before God. But because he gives to us his righteousness, it makes us accepted and adored and celebrated before God because we are in the person of Christ Jesus. He not only died that we might live, he lived that we might be blessed. And because of the cross, because Jesus was treated as if he had lived our lives, we will in heaven be treated as if we lived his perfect life. Don't misunderstand the phrase that Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. That is not denoting, that is not teaching works-based salvation. It does not nullify Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. that says, we are saved by grace through faith and not of works lest any man should boast. We do not have in the person of Jesus Christ a works-based salvation. He did all the work. He lived the perfect life, he died the atoning death, and he rose from the dead and conquered sin, death, and the devil. 
That is the basis on which we are saved. When we have faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. When it says Jesus became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, it's talking about obeying Jesus in the sense of trusting in him and his finished work on the cross. 1 John 5.23 corroborates when it says, and this is his commandment. This is what we obey, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross for your salvation? If you haven't trusted in that, I must tell you, there is no other way to get to heaven. If there were another way, the father would have answered in that way when Jesus prayed that in Gethsemane. And the fact that the cross is the only way provided by God for the salvation of humanity is proven by Christ's resurrection from the dead. Because nobody in the history of the world ever predicted and pulled off their own resurrection from the dead. Therefore, the words of Jesus Christ have validity beyond any other historical figure. And when he says in John chapter 14, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, nobody comes to the Father except through me, You can take that to the bank. His words have validity beyond anybody else. Amen. And so if you've been trusting in anything else, if you've been trusting in your own good performance, there's bad news for you today. And there's good news. Jesus is the one who performed. If you've been trusting in your church membership, there's bad news for you today. And there's good news for you today. Jesus Christ rose from the dead that we might have brand new life. If you've been trusting in an intellectual agreement or a religious agreement with the person of Jesus Christ, that will not do. You must come to the place of sincere, heartfelt repentance before God and calling upon him to save you as a sinner who is doomed apart from him in the work of the cross. It is not a mere intellectual agreeing with. It is not a religious affiliation. It is a real meaningful relationship with the living God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. And the final verse tells us that Jesus was designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. We're reminded once again that because he comes from that order, he's not only priest, but he is king. Jesus is our sympathetic high priest and he's our eternal king of kings. He's able to relate to us as a high priest in the moments of difficulty, weakness. But we must submit our will to him in the moment of the battle because he's the king. In the moments of desperate cries, Jesus has been there. Turn to him. In the battle of the wills, Jesus won in the garden. Rely upon him. We must confess and we can confess our fears to God, but we must and we can surrender our wills to God. And our reverential fear of God has got to be greater than the fear of our problems. That's a right perspective. And we have that reverential fear, we will determine to do nothing contrary to his will, for he's our priest and our king. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for doing this. Thank you for humbling yourself and being draped in humanity, God. Thank you for coming to seek and save we who were lost. 
Thank you that you're so merciful to come and find us, to pursue us. And Lord, I believe you're even pursuing people here today. So if there's anyone here, Lord, that hasn't called upon you in sincerity for salvation, who has not obeyed you by believing in who you are and the work that you did on the cross, bring him to that place today. Cause him to call out and say, God, I'm a sinner, but you're a savior. Jesus, I've been all wrong, but you are all right. Forgive me. Lord, as people call upon you, hear that prayer. Flood our lives with grace and mercy. Thank you that you renew and you restore, that you wash and you cleanse and you make right. Thank you that you understand our struggles. You know about what's hard in our parenting. You understand the difficulties of our marriages. You know as we're struggling against that sin. You know the weight of that sin, having fought against it till the end. You know how difficult it is for us. Thank you that you are full of grace and mercy. And thank you that you have not left us without strength, but you gave us the promise of the Father, the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Minister the power of God to our lives. The power to heal. The power to set free the power to set right, the power to cleanse, the power to experience and walk in forgiveness and newness. Thank you that you've called us not to yield and not to compromise. Thank you that your word was to these Hebrews who were fearing for their lives because of their Christianity in an anti-Christ culture. It's not as extreme, but it's similar for us today. Jesus, you seem less and less popular. There seems to be more and more wickedness and rebellion. It's getting harder and harder to live for you in sincerity and in truth. So we ask for help. Thank you that you're the God who's been there and who is there. If you guys need help today, prayer team will be up here to your left. Communion is here to remember and celebrate the work of the cross. If you're really struggling today, come and get on your face before God. Let this be your garden where you cry out and surrender to the will of the Father. He'll meet you here.